0: you need to take Sunday mornings and do something? Like that. No, I don't think so. Um, so tonight we're going to be beginning a new series, and I'm excited to get into it. I know that some of you are as well, since some of the reason that we are going to be going through the book of Revelation is because some of you wanted to do that. But we're not going to be focusing on a specific passage tonight. as uh, I wanted to kind of clear up the air a little bit as we... Oh, hey guys, come on in. Is it Ivan, yeah. Come on anybody. So anyways, we're not going to be dealing with a specific passage in Revelation. We're going to be um, trying to clear the air a little bit before we get to that. Come on in, Ivan. We're going to be in Revelation. No, we're starting a new series, but Come on up here, dude. Come take a seat. So the reason for that, I wanted to spend some time doing this before we actually get to the text, is because the book of Revelation carries with it, I guess you feel like a lot of baggage. There's a lot of baggage that comes with it. We come to this book with a lot of tradition and presuppositions already uh, in our minds and influencing us what we think about it. And to be clear, I, we actually do that with every book of the Bible, to be honest, and everything in life as well. But the difference here, though, is that it really could lead to some divergent views and reason to even miss you know, the whole point of the book. And so I want to take a little bit of time to kind of lay out some groundwork first. We're going to deal with tonight what's called a pro- prolegomena. Prolegomena is a, kind of sounds like a fancy word. It's where we get our word a prologue from, but you'll see it as the opening chapter in, in more substantial books. And what prologue, excuse me, prolegomena means, is it means words that go before. And so there are words that I think for our context tonight, that need to go before we actually get into the text the problem with that of course is that we could really say so many words that go before before we actually even get to the text i was going back to my old seminary uh, class notes i ended up taking a class specific on this book uh, i think in my last year there and that just focused on this one book alone and the first five lectures or lessons, however you want to call it, they were all just introduction. So before even getting to the text, the first five, you know, two-hour-long classes were all just introduction. And so I, I'm only trying my plan. My intent tonight is to just have whittled down the basic blocks of information down to just one uh, sermon, or you know, it's hard to even call this really a sermon. It's kind of like sermon. It's going to be missing. Some of those typical things that a sermon has that usually has exhortations and gospel comforts, but it certainly will still have application to our lives and how we think about the book of Revelation. So, next week, Lord willing, we hope to start in verse uh, one of chapter one and we'll see how much how far we get from there. But tonight's going to kind of be like a 10,000 foot flyover on some of the traditions and um, presuppositions that are typically held concerning this book. So let's pray, and then we'll um, we'll get to uh, the, the outline for the night. Okay, Let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we even deal with this introduction. So our Father in heaven, we thank you for letting us gather tonight. And for the opportunity to go through this book, Revelation, together, we pray that it would be profitable for us. Uh, that even tonight that we would help clear the air about some of the misconceptions concerning this book and that you would use uh, our time together to bring us into a greater dependency upon you and a greater love for you, a greater appreciation for your word and how it instructs and informs our life. Please, Lord, uh, help us to not think that we can understand your word apart from the work of your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would grant to us illumination as we think of even these, these concepts that are based upon your word tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. So we're going to be titling this series The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ and the reason for that is not just so that you won't be tempted to say revelations with an S, because it's not revelations it's just the revelation the actual name a revelation to John. Yeah, this book is from John is singular. It's not again it's not revelations although John does receive a number of visions and he does he does have these different scenes enacted out, as we'll see, but it all encompasses one revelation given to the church. Okay, The whole book itself is this one revelation given to the church. And the word revelation is taken from the Greek word apocalypsis. So when you, when you reopen up your New Testament and you open up to the book of Revelation, the Greek word there is apocalypsis for revelation. And so the 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 first three words in this book in the Greek, it would say, Apocalypsis Iasu Christo, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's literally how it starts. Uh, Apocalypsis. Iasu, Iasu Christo. So this revelation of Jesus Christ is, is, you know, is also rightly called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And it's a helpful reminder uh, naming our title of the series that because it helps us to understand kind of the, the genre of this book or part of the genre of this book. Now, our, the literature of this book. Now, all of the Bible is is holy scripture. It is all uh, theoposos. The, the writers of the, the books of the Bible came under the inspiration of God. It's, it's God breathed. As Peter describes in 121, the, the authors of the scripture were carried about by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. Okay, This it was done in cooperation with the human author's characteristics, but the Spirit worked in them in such a way that the words and ideas that they wrote down came to them through the wisdom of the Spirit. And the Spirit also accomplished this through specific styles of literature. And we need to be clear as to those kinds of literature because Revelation is a specific kind of literature, and that influences how we understand it. So, Richard Bachham says one of the problems readers of the New Testament have with revelation is that it seems an anomaly among other New Testament books. They do not know how to read it and then here's the danger from that. Bachham goes on to say misinterpretations of revelation often be- begin by misconceiving the kind of book that it is so some so an important part of the prolegomena is that we need to get established tonight is noting what type of literature. The revelation given to John is, and it turns out it's not actually that easy to answer. Uh, th- th- there's more than one genre in this book, and properly speaking, there's more than one genre in most books of the Bible. Uh, that it's the case for many, if not all of them. They all have different genres sprinkled throughout here and there. The difference though is Revelation does that on a greater scale. You and, give us a few examples of the different kind of genres you see in the Bible? You're going to get them. You're going to get them. So further, one of the problems we face is that we're not really familiar with one of the genres in Revelation. And that's the genre that is called apocalyptic literature. And the other two genres are epistle and prophecy. Epistle just means a letter. So we know what an epistle or a letter is. And that's because we've uh, dealt with that type of things before. We we still have letters today, obviously, although it's mostly electronic mail. It's mostly email. Uh, But we know what a letter is, too. It's, It's a body of words directed to a specific group of people or, or a person more on that in a moment because we need to identify the audience of this book too and the date of this book because that also impacts our understanding so we'll get to that soon uh, we recently just finished judges that would be a narrative the type of literature or genre that is judges is a narrative there were other genres sprinkled in but it primarily told a story about a specific period of time with a specific group of people Before that, though, we preached through Ephesians, and also after that, we did Jude. You remember that? Those are both epistles. Those are both letters that are addressed to specific people at a specific time for specific reasons to deal with specific issues. And from that, it's very specific. specific. And from that, we can also learn from these epistles about ourselves, because even though they were a specific time, a specific place, and to a specific people, as the author Solomon or Koholet to Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, he says that a number of times in Ecclesiastes. So the types of things that are written about in Ephesians or Jude, even though they're not originally written to us, they're originally written to a different um, context and a different original audience, there are truths in them that are applicable to us. And so let me mention here too, I'm going a quick for the sake of time here, but let me mention some rules for interpreting an epistle. Number one, Bible text cannot mean what it was never meant to mean to its original authors or original hearers. And that's really important when we think of the uh, apocalypse that was given to John. The original authors, the original recipients of the book of Revelation was given this book and it meant something to them. And whatever we want to say about it today, it had to have meant, we can't change what it meant. To them to mean something different for us. And that's you know, one of the most popular views the Revelation today does that consistently. The dispensational premillennial view, we'll talk about that when we get there. But because this book's also an epistle, you have to observe that rule of not making it mean something that it was never meant to mean to its author or original hearers. So you you could all see maybe how treating Revelation this way could lead to, or not treating Revelation this way, could lead to all sorts of fantastical interpretations, which is common with a lot of people. Secondly, whenever we share similar specific life situations with the original audience, then God's word to us today is the same as his word as it is to us back then. So for example, though we live in a different time than John's audience, we find ourselves in a particular specific situation as his hearers. Christ hasn't returned yet, And we live in a world who, apart from the new birth, hates God. That's true for the people who received uh, this letter originally from John. Or think of Paul's letter to Romans. We, just like them, have all sinned and by grace are saved through faith and not works. So even though we're not the original audience of these letters, there are these these truths that we share the same and they mean something to us then. And then thirdly, application from Bible passages can change. Uh, we you could have maybe 500 different applications from a single text but an application can't change the meaning of the text and where we really get down to the 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 hard work in revelation is the meaning of the text that's where a lot of the confusion comes from and so remembering that it's an epistle helps us to remember that we can't take an application and then change the meaning if you think about um you know the quote to quote the mark of the beast and what people think about that today you can see how that tends to happen uh, accidentally, but they shouldn't be if we're being faithful to how we read the Bible. Revelation is an epistle. Um, as we're saying, verse 1-4 notes that it was supposed to be circulated to seven churches. Bachem notes that it's misleading. It's to co- to called chapters 2 and 3 as the letters to the seven churches, actually, because they aren't really letters, but they're prophetic messages to those churches, and it's not actually just those little books or those little... Um, brackets of scripture in chapters two and three that are the letters to those churches. It's the whole book of Revelation that is to be given to these churches. And those little sets of instruction, if you look at Revelation chapter two and three, you'll see there that there is specific instruction to specific places, the church in Smyrna, the church in in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, the church in Ephesus. Uh, the, The whole scope of the letter from chapter one, all the way through chapter 21 is is for each of those churches and actually other churches as well too. We'll get to that in a moment. The, The choice of seven churches was strategic. Further, the same prophetic warnings G.K. Beale notes would apply to any church that is behaving in the same manner as those churches. So the whole book of Revelation was a letter that was to be read by those churches mentioned and the other churches as well. The choice of, again, seven churches is strategic. So what you have happening today a lot of, in of places, in, depending on the, the view that you have towards Revelation, is they'll say, here's these, here's these seven letters, and that's totally separate from the rest of the book. But that's not right. The, the whole of the book is meant for those original churches and as well as other churches as well. Secondly, uh, revelation is prophecy. When we think of prophecy, we have to come to terms or to grips with the reality that prophecy isn't only about predicting the future. It's not just about foretelling. Even the prophets in the Old Testament, a primary task of theirs was to call their generation to repentance, and to call their generation to faith, and to call their generation to obedience. And prophetic literature is often contained um, literal statements. It contains figurative statements contains metaphors. It contains hyperbole. Sometimes they would be predictive, of course, and sometimes they're just more poetic and they're just making a point. The context determines these things, and Revelation claims to be a prophecy. The word is used seven times in the book, and five times the text emphatically says that what John is writing is a prophecy, uh, 1, 3, and then chapter 22, set verse 7, 10, 18, and 19. And thirdly, Revelation is apocalyptic, okay? So the three main genres of Revelation are epistle, prophecy, and then apocalypse. And it's this genre that gives us the most trouble, of course. And part of it is that we're just not used to this kind of writing. We don't have people writing apocalypses now. Uh, Some political cartoons might actually come close to what an apocalypse is. But for John's people, they knew how to handle this genre better than we do. The book of Daniel has apocalyptic literature in it. So does Ezekiel. So do uh, so some of the other prophetic books as well. But Revelation clearly has the most. And there were many extra biblical works that use a style of writing too that would that were contemporary to the Bible. So like, and maybe a little bit later than the Bible, even like the um, so-called book of Enoch, that's a, a poc, um, it's not, a, it's not a part of the canon. It's not inspired scripture, but it's still apocalyptic literature. And one thing that really makes us realize this is how um, that we're not comfortable with apocalyptic literature, but the original audience was, is of what happens in the gospel accounts. In the gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you especially see this in Matthew's gospel. Um, the disciples are constantly asking Jesus for help to understand the parables. So Jesus speaks in parables because some are intended to know the truth and others are not intended to know. And so his disciples come to him and say, "Ask him what is the meaning of this parable But then, in chapter twenty four in matthew twenty four his disciples ask him when the end of the age is going to come, and what are the signs of that age and it's called the of that discourse um that's the the heading that's been has been given, and some of the things that Jesus says in that chapter are that that um he uses apocalyptic literature, and he says that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The sun will be darkened, and the moon's not going to give its light. And Jesus' hearers, it's interesting, they don't need him to explain what he means. They get what he means, that he's referring to the upcoming destruction of the temple, and we know that they actually understood what he meant because historical evidence, like Josephus tells us, that the Christians, when the uh, the, the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, they believed what you said and they fled and they lived. So they, they understood the apocalyptic literature, but they even had a hard time understanding parables. So it's just a little interesting. It's not the case for us today, though. Um, apocalyptic literature is harder to nail down than others. Uh, Beale notes that it's best to understand it as intensified prophecy. So you think of, like, what is apocalyptic literature? Well, it's intensified prophecy, it's heightening. And it's more, and it's a more intense clustering of prophetic language than normal prophecy, and so it offers a perspective to the world that we couldn't work out ourselves. It's special revelation, and so we need to pay attention and to look and to listen as to what God is wanting to say through it. Apocalyptic literature wants to get our attention. You know, we see that even in the way that this book takes advantage of the word "Behold." It uses this word behold, uh, 26 times. So on average, I mean, you know, like once per chapter, if it, if it worked out that way, or a little bit more than once per chapter. And Christian apocalypse is especially important because again, it's a message that God wants us to know. It's something that God especially wants us to take note of. So the genre is mainly threefold, an apocalyptic prophetic epistle. And don't miss this. Okay. That means that it's actually meant to be understood. There's this belief about revelation that claims like it wants to veil the truth, or we, we somehow innately think that, but that can't be further from the truth. It's revealing. It's revelation, right? It's revealing to us the things that God wants us to know. The challenge, though, as Ian Bryan notes, is that in his commentary that the book can change from one of these genres in specific verses, and then also touch on subgenres as well from verse to verse. So, for example, verse 1 starts out, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's apocalyptic. Then verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's actually a benediction, a subcategory. Verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That's epistle. Verse 5 to 6, says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. That's another subcategory, it's a doxology. It's a, it's a, it's a, a um, stanza of praise. Verse 7, Look, he is coming in the clouds. That's apocalyptic. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Well, that's prophetic literature. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion, epistle. So just over nine verses, you have it jumping from different genres and little subcategories of genres as well. So that's a challenge, but it's not insurmountable. We just need to pay attention to the context and be aware of the hermeneutical rules for the context. Hermeneutics is just the the word that means to under- how you read your Bible. It's, an, it's a word that, ex- that is going after explaining how it is we understand we read the Word of God, or any book. Um, but the intent of this book, Revelation, is for us to know certain things. Further, the book takes use of symbols and numerology, and because of the genre of the book, we need to take the reverse method that we may typically use when it comes to reading Scripture. Usually in Scripture, you want to read everything literally. But in a book like this, because of its genre, the fact that it's an, ap- an apocalyptic prophetic epistle, the right thing to do is to assume that these things are actually symbols, that they're representing something else, unless we're told to read it literally. And those there's a couple cases that are like that. There's um numbers that especially stand out in Revelation. Uh, number four, the number seven, number 12, along with their multiples. So like 24 or 14 or 144,000, you know, there's all these different multiples of those numbers that are important. And often a number is chosen to represent something symbolically. So consider the seven churches that, that we're going to deal with in chapter two and three. There's There's something to that, all right? Meaning it's not just for those seven churches. Seven means something. And we'll get to that when we get to it. But the use of symbols and symbolic use of numbers, Beale says, is a good thing because it serves to remind us that this is expressing the sovereignty of God over all of human history, that God, he's, he's set these things up in a way that we can see, see his sovereignty, and we'll say more about that in just a moment too. Um, that's the genre for the book. We need to be aware of these things as we get to the specific text. These things will all be coming back up and highlighted when it's appropriate as we work through the different verses. But there are other things that we need to consider when it comes to understanding this book as well. And that's the dating of it, because that matters to how what we think of it. And then also um, the different approaches to interpretation of the book, which also include the four uh, millennial views. So we'll get to that now. And, and this is really at this junction, is when brothers and sisters go in different directions with what the book means. And let me say something about this really quick as well, too. When we're considering the different views expressed in these different interpretation methods, we're speaking of an in-house debate for the most part, meaning different true Christians can have a different take here, and that doesn't mean that they're not saved or something like that. It will mean that some are right and some are wrong, or maybe it'll mean that we're all a little wrong and a little right, but this isn't a, supposed to be a test of fellowship, or it doesn't have to be at least, except for in the case of maybe some extreme views when you would have to separate from them because of their, their view is so extreme. But true believers have held these different views and have an influenced how they interpreted Revelation throughout the course of history. And so what people often think of when it comes to Revelation is a subset of Christian, Christian theology called eschatology, which means the study of the last things. Eschatology, though. It also has to do with how we live now. It's a mistake to think that eschatology is just concerned with future events. Now, some brothers take this very far, and they'll say that if you don't agree with their view of eschatology, then you will live in a certain way now. And there's some truth to that, but I think they overstate their case when they say that, because ultimately, all Christians, no matter what interpretation method we apply here, we all believe Christ is coming again that he has won, that he is winning, and that we are to now live for him. The details is where that gets muddy, but I would want for you all to simply be charitable with other uh, brothers or sisters on these matters. You know, eschatology certainly impacts how we think uh, about the here and now, but it's not to be a club that we use to you know beat our fellow image bearers with, maybe a rod to poke them and encourage them to greater biblical fidelity and faithfulness, for this reason or for that reason, but we should be charitable. It's not something that you know. If if so and so believes the premillennial dispensational view, well, then he's not going to live a godly life now. That's not that's not necessarily true. They might make different choices, and some of those choices are going to be choices that we would I would disagree with. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be godly necessarily. Anything like that. So I'm going to be very brief on these views because to go into great detail on them would cause us to take up many, many lessons, and we don't have the time for that. And also, as we discuss these views, we'll also consider the book's date within the topic as well. And I'm just using here for the most part uh, Ian Bryan's definitions out of his commentary since they're short, and I'm just adding some details. So these are going to be overly simplistic, but I'm trying to give you a, a taste of the, of these different views, So that, and then eventually I'll tell you how I'll be teaching. Um, The first view is called the idealist view, and this sees the text as describing timeless spiritual truths about the nature and purpose of God and the relationship between the church and the world. So for the most part, the book of Revelation is a book of timeless spiritual truths within the church age and the nature and the purpose of God and the relationship between the church and the world. That, of course then the book has meaning for the original audience and the events that were transpiring and soon to transpire then, but also that these truths are in a way the same things that we should be concerned about overall. So if you if you held this view, you might say something like, well, I didn't live in the same time as John and the recipients of his apocalypse, but we are in a sense in the same generation in that we also live in between the first and second coming of Christ. They lived in between the first and second coming of Christ. We do too, just, you know, nearly 2,000 years later, uh, 1,900 years later. Still in that time period, though. The, um, The future, another view, so that's the idealist view, the futurist view teaches that the book of John's Revelation is primarily dealing with future events. It's only speaking about, with the exception of the first three chapters, a time in the future, right before when Christ is going to come back again. And there are some more extreme views that say much of Revelation is only describing a time period of like seven years after a secret rapture. So the dispensational premillennial view. So if you hold to this view, you might think that much of, if not all, depending on when you when you time the rapture, if you hold to a rapture, because not all premillennials believe in a rapture, a rapture being the cat the so-called catching up of saints to meet Jesus in the Sky um, before he comes back. Uh, so if you believe that or not, the tribulation, the judgments of revelation aren't going to impact you. If and things are just going to get really bad at the end, if you hold to that premillennial dispensational view, yeah, Adam. How can they say that it would be a secret rapture when it says that everyone will know he is here? Yeah, that's a big reason why I uh, changed my view on that too. So we're not going to probably get into that, and and so unless we get to Revelation chapter twenty, maybe we'll talk about it then. But we're not going to really get into it because the concept of a rapture is. Something I think that is not um, found in the text, unless we're talking about the idea of the saints being when Jesus comes back to consummate his kingdom, those who are alive on the earth are caught up in the air. That I think is biblical, but that's not a secret rapture that then is followed by a specific amount of time. But we'll get to that when we talk about the millennial positions a little bit too. So, That's the futurist view. Then there's a historicist view. And this view sees revelation as a prediction of a long chain of major events and the rise of significant persons throughout history. It's not just focused on the quote end times. So very, um, it's much similar then to the idealist view, but different in that the certain events are only at certain times, no price, no timeless um, principles really found in the historicist historicist view. It's just events that are sequential happening throughout um, history. Then also there's the preterist view. And this view places the book at being written before 70 AD, which is in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And then it sees that much of the, the prophetic warnings, the apocalyptic literature in Revelation, is describing the destruction of the temple. So there's two kinds of preterism. There's full and partial preterism. Full would say that Christ came back in 70 um, AD at the destruction of the temple. And perhaps some of them will say only in judgment. Nothing wrong with that uh, rather than like a consummation sense. And then they also go on to say that we now live already. We're living presently in the new heavens and the new earth right now. Even though it hasn't been consummated, it's been started. So it's that's one view. Partial tens, partial preterism is a, I think, a better option than full preterism. It, but it tends when it comes to the book of Revelation, it tends to break the book in half, saying the first eleven chapters are about the fall of Jerusalem, and then the remaining chapters up until the, um, the chapters about the new heavens and the new earth are about the destruction of Rome in like the fifth century. So for us, whether one is full or partial, we look at revelation and for the most part uh, since it 's already happened since we live in you know two thousand and twenty one right now we just simply see the faithfulness of God on display as as his plan has worked out, but it's already stuff that has happened. And again, there's some differences. We're just being, we're going fast here, being kind of vague, but some preterists believe that we are already now living in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, uh, revelation 20, 21 and 22, that's already started, which, you know, partial preterists tend to not say that. So the preterist view holds to a 69 AD or earlier date, Most other people will date this book around the, uh, after that, after the destruction of the temple, around 90 to 95 AD, because there was a Roman emperor named Domitian who was really responsible for ramping up the cult of state and emperor worship, and you see that being dealt with in the book of Revelation, and plus there's historical evidence outside of scripture, such as early church fathers, uh, specifically Irenaeus, who was a disciple of a disciple of John. So uh, these guys live like around, you know, 100, um, 120, 100 to 80 AD. Their testimony is that Revelation was written around 90 to 95. So there's another thing that is interesting. Uh, uh, Ian Bryan, he notes an argument against an early date of 69 or 70 that I think is is worth considering. He says that it's, that this is related to a danger of circular arguments. And he says, quote, there is a real possibility of arguing that something in the text points to an event in history that we know of, and then dating the text in relation to that event. And then, when it comes to our interpretation, pointing out this must be relevant, the be relevant event because of the date of the text. So, in other words, it says, "Oh, well, I know this big thing happened. Well, I'm going to date this book here because this big thing happened, and then I'm going to apply everything in the book to that big thing." Which, that's a good um, uh, thing that he notices. I thought. Uh, in other words, so you know, the, the preterist then position takes the reality that the gospel accounts do warn of the destruction of the temple, and then they, they apply that same teaching here and says this must be about that, and they date it accordingly. So there's also a fifth view called the eclectic view, and this is primarily the idealist view, but it takes some of the elements of the historicist view and, you know, the other views and the things that are good, and it merges them all together. Now, these views are also, um, and, and by the way, again, remember, all the views, no matter which view it is, they all say Christ is victorious. So again, this is a, something that we can just agree to disagree upon whenever it comes down to these things, but we talk it out. We sh- um, iron sharp is iron. You discuss these things and how it implies to the text. Uh, these views are also though, impacted by the millennial views and vice versa. So our views of the millennium are also impacted by our revelation interpretation methods. So there's primarily um, two views, you can really think of it, You can think of the millennium so the millennium is written about in Revelation chapter 20. And there's two primary ways to think about it. It's you're either post-millennial or you're pre-millennial. Postmillennial means that you believe that Christ is going to consummate his kingdom. He's going to return after the millennium, post-millennium. Premillennium means that you believe Christ is going to return before the millennium starts, so pre-millennium. So From these two main categories, they actually break down a little bit further. And one of the things that you have to be careful with when you think of these different views is when you read old theologians, so like early church fathers or the reformers, they have views and definitions for these that might be a little bit different than we are. So, for example, in the early church history, there's just pre-mill and post-mill. But when you think about it's not that pre-mill was what we now call historic pre-mill. It's different than what we would call a dispensational pre-mill. And that post-mill is what we would actually call now all amillennial, millennialism. And there's a there's two, there's a there's a new version of post-millennialism that came about around the time of the Puritans, and there's even a newer version of postmillennialism that's been popularized since like the sixties and seventies in the circles of people who also hold theonomy. So let me try to give you some brief uh, breakdowns of these. The historic premillennial view says that um, the time in between Jesus Jesus ascended and then there's a period of time that's going to happen. And at some point, there's no secret rapture or anything like that. At some point, things will get to a point where the, Jesus is going to come back, but it's not a full coming back. Jesus isn't, isn't properly reigning right now. He's in heaven, but he's not really reigning over the earth. And, but when Jesus comes back, he's going to reign then for a thousand years here on the earth. So he's premillennial return of Christ. And then after the end of that literal thousand years, he'll consummate the kingdom and usher in the eternal age. That's, his, that's a brief description of historical premillennialism. That's different than dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism only came about a couple hundred years ago by like the guys named Darby and Charles Ryrie and um, Schofield and the Schofield Study Bible. And that's different in the sense that it says it breaks down history to these different dispensations. And then it doesn't really, it separates even Israel from the church. There's a lot of discontinuity between the two groups. And then when it comes to the last things or what it calls the last things, it says that things are going to get very, very bad on on the earth. And then there'll be a quote unquote secret rapture, which again, the Bible doesn't talk about a secret rapture. If you've seen the Left Behind movies or the Left Behind books, they teach this. And this was the popular view in the United States, in the West, uh, for the last you know couple hundred years. But I think it's on the decline now. Anyways, um, it teaches that there, there will be a, Jesus will come and will rapture up the church as things are getting really bad, and right before they get really bad. And then there'll be seven years of tribulation. And then after that, Jesus will come and reign on the earth, and then he'll reign for a thousand years. And there's even different views between different premillennial uh, dispensationalists. Some will think that, well, the church gets raptured out in the middle of the tribulation. So there's like a pre-trib, a post-trib, and a mid-trib uh, option. And most people want the pre-trib option, right? Because who wants to live through tribulation? So those people will view all the events that Revelation describes in after chapter 3 and in between chapter um, 20 as happening during that tribulation period, all very futuristic view of the Bible, of this book. And then you have the post-millennial positions. All-millennial simply means there is no millennium. Like an atheist, you put an A before the word theist, so no God. Well, A before millennium, all-millennium just means no millennium. And that's not to say that there is – it's an unfortunate name. It's really – a better name for it would be called like a realized eschatology. Basically for the all-millennialist is – the millennium is the time in between Jesus' first and second coming. So it's not a literal thousand years. It's a figurative number that just explains how, what the world is like in between Jesus' first and second coming. And that means for the book of Revelation that we've, we're have presently in the millennium right now, and the events that Revelation describes are happening all throughout this time period. We'll talk about that more uh, when we get to it. But it takes advantage of a a method of interpretation called recapitulation, which, like, is looking at the same event happening from different angles. We'll see that with like the, the, the bowl judgments, the um, seals, and the uh, incense. But we'll deal with that later. Post-millennium is a little bit different in the sense that, again, there's two versions of it. The old classical version, which was like championed by like Jonathan Edwards and came about with the Puritans, is that the world would eventually become so Christianized and get so better that it would, by the work of the church, that it would usher in this sort of a golden age, and that golden age would either literally be a thousand years, or some people, they would say it's just a figurative number, and then eventually Jesus would come back after that uh, to usher in the kingdom, but we would live in this quote-unquote utopia or golden age. That's not um, believed by modern post-millennials. Most modern post-millennials now are Think like all millennials that basically the church is always growing throughout the age. If there's more people being added to the church, but there's these ups and downs in in the history. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. One of the difficulties with this, though, is that you know we live in America. It's good right here. It's going down right now for us, but we don't know exactly what's going on and what the life of Christians is is like in other parts of the world at any given time. And so it, it's hard to keep track of all the things and merge them all together. But nevertheless, this newer version of post also teaches that eventually the gospel will spread throughout the whole world to such a way where God's law is enforced throughout the majority of the world. And people, even if they're not saved, will receive it happily until you know, the very end of Christ comes back. Again, this is very simplistic. There's much more that could be said. Um, but those are those, those views now the view that i hold i'll be teaching from is on millennialism so i think that we're presently living in the millennium that's what the bible teaches um that it that it was also written uh around 90 a.d 90 to 95 a.d and then also the so the view that i would hold be the idealist with perhaps some ecliptic of tendencies in it but mostly idealist that this book is informing us on the types of things that are even happening today. So uh, preterism I think is actually helpful. I just don't think it has anything to do with revelation because the in the sense of 70 AD because the whereas preterism is true concerning Matthew 24 for most of that and the all of that discourse, it doesn't matter for revelation because this book was written after that. So I understand these things are confusing that I've already mentioned. And clearly, there's disagreement between on brothers on what's the right way. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any confusion at all, of course. And there are strengths and weaknesses to every position, except for the all mill position. There's all strength to that, of course. You could be, be assured. <laughs> um, pretty But sure there's no completely... It's the simplest system, yeah. Thing, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's good that we're going through this book. And let me tell you also, it's not meant to be confusing. Uh, Daniel Aiken in the Christ, uh, really, it's really not meant to be confusing. Daniel Aiken in the Christ centered exposition commentary takes a quote from Winston Churchill about Russia in the 1930s and he applies it to this book. And he says, Revelation is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And granted, we're not used to this literary style of revelation, but that quote misses the mark for me. We should labor to make it so that quote isn't true for us. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean it's going to be like the, the simple meaning is just going to jump right off the page at us. But it does mean that because of our traditions and our presuppositions, uh, we have to deal with those and approach this book faithfully with eyes looking to glorify Christ, to see Christ in it, because the intent of this book is not to confuse us. I mean, just look at the introduction of the book. We're not meant to be bewildered by this book. Look at the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, right? God wants us to see these things, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So, if this was a book that was supposed to be confusing and bewildering to us and and off limits, why would it be something that he wanted to show to us? Why would it be something that is supposed to bless us? The problem is is that we come in we come to this book with unnecessary fears and a lot of tradition and presuppositions that make it confusing for us but I don't think it has to be that way. doesn't mean it's going to be easy for us to understand it rightly, but we're going to do our best. Um, you know, we're not going through Revelation right now because things in our world are pretty crazy. And so that means, oh, we got to look at Revelation. It is true, things are crazy, but that's not why we're going through this book. And this book is specifically and only about um, the – it's not only about the events are happening now. I mean, again, I'm all millennial. So I think this book is talking about events that have happened all throughout uh, the time period in between Jesus' first and second coming. We're going through this book in order that we may know the Lord more and know what it is that he has revealed to us, which of course then is going to help us live for him today. Because this book is truly a wonderful book, a book that will help us and a book that will bless us as it promises to if we can distance ourselves from the confusion that is you know, in so many of our minds. It's a covenantal book. It's a book that is summing up life in the time of the new covenant people of God. It's filled with covenantal language. It's covenantal blessings for those united to Christ in the covenant of grace and covenantal cursing for those outside of the covenant of grace. It is at great lengths. It takes advantage of the Old Testament. So if you want to better understand Revelation, be familiarized with your Old Testament a good thing to do would be to be faithfully immersed in the Old Testament literature. This one book has more allusions to the Old Testament and the covenant promises and curses than any other book combined. It has the the most Old Testament references than any other New Testament book. There are a total of 405 verses in Revelation. And in those 405 verses, there are 676 allusions to the Old Testament. In those verses, so almost in every verse, there's almost two allusions to the Old Testament. Um, when you when you come when you get down to it, uh, some verses have more than one, of course, and that's staggering, right? It's amazing, really, that what we should see is that we need our whole Bibles. The Lord God through the hand of John is saying that the things previously written were pointing us to what He's talking about here. There's great continuity from Genesis to Revelation, and we need to be aware of Genesis to Malachi, and as well, Matthew to Jude, to understand what's being taught here. So here's, just a small sample. The vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 draws on the angel in Daniel 10, and the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. The worship of God in Revelation 4 includes imagery from God's descent to Mount Sinai, as well as images from God interacting with people and judges in Joshua. The seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, the sequences draw on the plagues of Egypt in Exodus 7 through 10. The beasts that are described uses imagery from Daniel 7. The figures in Revelation 12 draw on images from Psalm 2, from Isaiah 66, and Micah 4 into Micah 6. So John's use of the Old Testament is different in, right here in Revelation than in other places in the Bible. For example, he never, says like, he, he never once says, as it was written, or you've heard it, it was said. And then he, like, quotes it verbatim. He simply alludes and refers to the Old Testament, again, nearly twice per verse. And again, I think this is because of the covenantal nature of the book. He's wanting to say that this is the new covenant after it has been inaugurated and we are waiting for its consummation, which this book also talks about, of course, in the final chapters. But he's saying that everything has been building up to this. And here we are. We're living in it now gospel promises were made to Abraham in a covenant, those promises are shown to be fulfilled by the end of Revelation. And those end chapters use the same sort of language that Psalm 1 uses to instruct God's covenant people back then as well. G.K. Beale points out that Revelation 22, 18-19 serve as a new law code to new Israel, spiritual Israel, those who are sons of Abraham by faith which is modeled on the old law code ethic to Israel. So Deuteronomy, if you remember in Deuteronomy, instructs God's people to not add or to take away from the words that are in that book, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Well, the same thing is reemphasized in Revelation 22, 18 to 19. Do not take away from the words in this book. Do not add to it. Otherwise, all the curses will be added to you. It's wanting to draw this continuity. It's telling us that God is, keeping his plans, he's fulfilling his purposes. And so the point of Revelation being covenantal and using so much of what was already written in the Bible before this book is to convey the reality that the new creation as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Revelation just doesn't come on the scene from nowhere. It's not this random book of these images that make no sense at all. He's he's calling back on the previous books of scripture to say, this is where it's all culminating. It takes themes from the Old Testament and the New Testament and shows how they culminate in the New Covenant, the New Temple, the New Israel, the New Jerusalem, all of which are summed up in this concept of the new creation. And further, this book shows us the sovereignty of God throughout human history. As we read this book, we might be reminded of what Isaiah forty-five seven says, I create light, and I make darkness, I create calamity, or I make well-being, I create calamity, I, the Lord, do all these things. We're going to read of all these you know, good things and these bad things happening, we see these trials happening and victories happening. And of course, at the end of it all, we should be made to think God is in control. We can trust him and we can uh, know that this is his will unfolding. That's important for every Christian in every age to know. And another reason we're studying this book is because it reminds us that there is a willingness to suffer for Christ is often the path to victory. G.K. Beale says that the cross sealed Christ's victory over Satan. And this book reminds us that no matter what suffering we may endure in this age, we will be kept by Christ. A primary purpose of the book of Revelation was to console, reassure, uplift, comfort, exhort, and encourage Christians in the face of persecution and to encourage them to remain faithful no matter what may be going on. So this book isn't a book that is supposed to be terrifying or scary. It's it's talking about things that have been happening for the past two thousand years. It's talking about things that we have already have ex- people have experienced, and it does, of course, have some future elements to it. Again, Christ hasn't consummated His kingdom yet, and hasn't um, created the new heavens and the new earth. I would say, because I'm not a preterist, but there are there are many things that we should be able to take from this and learn from this. It's a covenantal book. It's an encouraging book. It's not meant to be fearful or confusing. We just have to approach it uh, with grace and and pray, and prayer prayerful need of understanding. So any, that was kind of a lot, I know. Any questions? The regular, when we get to regular sermons, they won't be that long. We'll try to take, you know, a shorter amount of time. No questions? Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for, given us this time to be in your book. We covered, I tried to cover a lot tonight, Lord. We pray that you would make it to be clear, help us to have understanding. We know that we all bring our traditions and presuppositions into this book. and uh, We ask that you would help us to be clear about what those things are and that you would give us over to faithful interpretation methods and that you would have us to be encouraged from this book. It's good to to know, Lord, that you even say right in the very beginning that blessed is the one who reads this book And who um, takes these prophecies. So Lord, we want to understand knowing that we are already blessed in Christ. And it is only because Christ is our King, our Lord, our Prophet, our Priest, that we are right with you. And so as we look at this book over the next coming weeks, we pray that you would further our love for you and our devotion unto you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.